The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. Thank you for joining us from around Australia. I'm Emma Fay. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Guildhouse, and I'm really pleased to welcome you here tonight for our final revision session of the spring season in conversation with Dr. Lisa Slade and Daniel Slater. Today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Dr. Daniel, sorry, Daniel Slater, Head of Exhibitions and Loans from the v Museum in London, and Lisa Slade, Assistant Director, Artistic Programs, AGSA, for a conversation about the power and meaning of community during the time of a global pandemic. In our conversation tonight, I'll invite Daniel and Lisa, both representing iconic institutions, to reflect on the intimacy and power of a collection to unpack how museums and galleries connect, collect and curate. So, my turn to welcome Daniel and Lisa. Daniel is an art historian and a curator based in London, currently serving as the head of exhibitions at the Victorian Albert Museum. As part of the promotion of this talk, we featured some imagery from Daniel's internationally toured exhibition, David Bowie Is, a groundbreaking exhibition celebrating one of the most influential artists in music, film and video, fashion and performance. And this exhibition was seen by over 1 million people worldwide. In early 2019, Slater co-curated Objects of Wonder, British sculpture from the Tate Collections 1950s to present, as part of his role as head of international collections exhibitions at the Tate, where he tour led touring exhibition programs in collaboration with organisations all over the world. His most recent project, Pandemic Objects, is an editorial project and collection campaign that compiles and reflects on material culture that has taken on new meaning and purpose during the coronavirus outbreak, which is very timely for our talk tonight. Dr. Lisa Slade is Assistant Director, Artistic Programs at the Art Gallery of South Australia. Her recent curatorial projects will be known to many in our South Australian community. They include Quilty, a national touring exhibition that surveyed the work of Australian artist Ben Quilty, John Marwinchel, I Am the Old and the New, a retrospective of Australia's premier bark painter, and the 2016 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art Magic Object. Both institutions are dearly beloved by their communities which span far beyond their immediate geographic locations. So I thought I would just kick things off and I know that Lisa and Daniel have no shortage of things to say to each other and to explore for our benefit. Um, but we've just been concluding this incredible few days of conversations about the importance of community, especially during this time of the global health crisis. And I thought it would be good to kick things off by asking you both to perhaps introduce your institutions a little further and talk about how you in your roles have maintained your connection to your community, curators, audiences, peers and artists during this time. Thanks, Sam. After you, sir, just before you start, Daniel, I'm thinking about us as Slater and Slade or Slade and Slater. When we set up our law firm, I can't decide which way it should go. Have you got a preference? <laughs> I'm going to, I'll ask, I'll, I'll ask Paul for some advice as both my husband and the lawyer for what he thinks will be the right, right mode for us <laughs> to take from that. Our community, I think you, you, um, very astutely pointed out, Emma, that um, our audience at the VNA, which is similar to um, AXA, is an audience that is by no means one that is geographically approximate to us. And mm -hmm. in any normal year, um, around 50% of our visits um, to the museum in South Kensington 
would come from uh, international forests. And so we see, you know, those who come from overseas as part of our, um, our core visitation. But obviously over the past six months that has been um, hugely hit. And that's not just because, you know, we, we had to unfortunately close the museum for a period from March, but because international tourism right now is incredibly limited. And so, you know, the, the audience that we knew so well up until this March actually has, has changed quite significantly over the past few months. And we have, I suppose, when we closed the museum in March, which was, I think for all of us who, who went through that process, was a really kind of shocking, sobering moment, something that none of us had ever, uh, ever had to even think about before. Um, we then started to think of all the different ways that we could continue um, you know, to, to engage with our public. And that wasn't because we necessarily felt the obligation, although we did, but because with all of us being at home um, and with every, everyone else being at home, we, we, we felt the need to be able to continue having conversations with people and continue to you know, do what we do normally in a physical sense, um, but now in, in new ways. And a lot of that has been driven through digital activity. Um, and we've had uh, you know, a lot of really positive response from you know, the different kind of programs we put online. We did this really fantastic curator-led tour of our kimono exhibition, which we opened at the very end of February, and then very unfortunately had to close two weeks later. But in, the, in that two-week period, we, we did a series of, of films um, with the lead curator of that exhibition, which then, during lockdown, we were able to turn into a really rich digital offer, which then did win first prize in Time Out magazine for like the best you know, exhibition experience, um, which we were really pleased with. And you know, we, we have created a variety of programs for members and obviously pandemic objects, which was this really active you know, acquisitions process that we launched during lockdown. Is just another example of a way in which we wanted to continue to sort of have a relationship with our community. But I have to say, um, through all of this, what we were always looking toward was actually how we get the people back into the building. Because for us, that is, you know, the best use of what the Victoria and Albert Museum is. It's not, you know, it's not, it's a civic space. You know, we want, we want it to be where people come and can be social. And the idea of sort of existing just, just digitally for a long period doesn't allow us to do what it is that we feel we are here to do. So over the past six months, as much as we have been hugely active, you know, through these means, like right now, we've all been focusing a huge amount of energy on how we um, really build back to the experience that we want to give people um, when they come back to the building. And I feel like AGSA and the v have, some things in common. I mean, AXA, as, as most of the people joining us tonight know, is quite a kind of anglophilic institution. It's, we're quite British and the inclusion of decorative arts within our collection kind of builds a bridge to the V&A. And I think we've, we carry that kind of legacy in a, in a sense. Although, I mean, our collection of 47,000 objects is, you probably add a zero to yours, Daniel. Is it like half a million or something incredible like that? Well, it's it's actually 2.4 million, a bit more, but you know that 2.4 million might include, um, you know, one object as a single button from a garment, or it might include 
a Raphael cartoon. So it, 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 that number encapsulates the huge variety that existed in the collection, of which around 800,000 or so are in the photography collection. So mm. 2.4 million is the number, but obviously um, there's a wide range of material within that number. The, the idea of a button's really interesting because I, it speaks to a democracy that I think lies at the heart of your collection. And I would say that we at AXA try really hard to constantly democratise our museum and to make it a more civic space. So, I mean, that attunes, I think, quite well to the question that Emma has posed about this idea of community and what it means to lose them for a short time because we all close, we close for 10 weeks and during that time, it's, it, it is an, you're right, it's an absolute challenge to be without completion because, you know, my old adage is that the work isn't complete until you've got an audience to experience it. So we were incomplete, I suppose, as an institution. And I, I would really concur that whilst we got really excited about the digital space, it, it um, we got over it pretty quickly, that excitement. <laughs> Although I have to say that the, um, you know, digital realms, as you said, Daniel, brings us together in ways that would not normally have been possible. I can't imagine a time in, um, in our Guildhouse programming recent past that we would have felt confident reaching out to you in London and say, please join us for a conversation. It just wouldn't have been on the radar. So there have been some silver linings, although I think we are all reflecting on the fatigue of so much digital. Absolutely. Daniel, can you talk, I'm really curious about, well, a couple of things. Do you know you and I only curate shows with the word objects in them, it seems? So there's a, there's, a, there's a lot in common there. But I really want to know about pandemic objects. Can you talk us through that? Well, it's it's sort of... Um, it, it kind of exists at the moment in two different iterations. And one is on the back of the acquisitions programme and sort of really active um, kind of blogging that happened during lockdown. Down, which was really to um, bring the VNA into sort of um, into a relationship with what people were making at home in response to um, in response to the pandemic, and very much led by sort of what um, kind of ephemera people were you know creating children, adults, all kinds um, in their homes you know in support of a whole variety of things that were happening. Um, I suppose from March really onward, um, and a, you know a great deal of that material relates to, for instance, supporting the NHS and you know different sorts of things that children were making to encourage people to stay home, and really just to try and allow us to amalgamate, sort of accumulate uh, a tangible kind of you know resource of evidence that reflects kind of people's mindset throughout the lockdown period. Um, so. You know that is sort of being thought of at the moment in in relation to kind of a rainbows project and um because that is you know that's kind of the symbol that was taken up in support of the nhs and a variety of other sectors during lockdown but then also pandemic ob objects in general which is sort of part of the two things that are happening simultaneously that we're thinking about is a much more historic project looking back at pandemic pandemic objects um over over centuries really um, but obviously, you know, instigated by this particular moment in time where I suppose more so than I think, well, certainly more so than in any of our living memories, um, there has been, uh, a, you know, a kind of health issue which has affected um, absolutely everyone and that people have accepted that it has accepted, uh, impacted everyone. Because obviously there are other health issues which, 
you know, exist, but we try to sort of place them in marginalized communities and pretend as though um, they're not, you know, our problem. But mm. with COVID, it is something which everyone has, well, perhaps except Donald, everyone has accepted that it impacts. <laughs> and I suppose that is, you know, that, that for us is a really sort of um, helpful moment to kind of look back and say, well, this, these are different moments in history. And where this has happened before and to bring together material which speaks to this happening over different centuries. And do you think that's part of the VNA's kind of charter to be the memory, given that how eclectic and interdisciplinary the collection is and the programming, do you think that's part of the VNA's charter to be the memory of the country? Well, it's definitely part of our charter, I would say. I mean, I was a lot of the museums have that responsibility um, to, to look back, but absolutely to look forward as well. I mean, I suppose you would use memory to also inform what your thinking is today. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the really exciting sort of aspects of the program that we have is that we can bring together, because of the variety of the collection and because we cover fine art, decorative art, performance, um, without being so focused in one particular area like lots of other fantastic museums are, we can take far more sort of conceptual and theoretical subjects and then bring together an enormous variety of objects that speak to that particular subject. So when you come to, you know, a gallery at the BNA, you come to an exhibition at the BNA, um, you're, you're not looking at sort of one strand of making, you're getting like, you're getting an idea bombarded from every kind of angle you could possibly imagine. And that's what makes, you know, coming to the BNA and seeing our exhibitions so sort of infusing. Love that. Tell me about, you know, there's this odd concertina effect between the, the local and the international. As Em said, we're having this conversation tonight that we wouldn't otherwise be having. But there's also a contraction to the local. Mm. I'm super curious about what that looks like for you because I kind of know what it looks like for us and we can talk about that a bit. But what does it look like for the V&A and, and maybe more broadly for other art uh, museums? And what does it mean for local artists working right now in the UK? Well, I mean, I think in general, for artists working in the UK right now, um, it's, a, it's obviously a very difficult moment. And I would say even before COVID, particularly in London, you know, it was, it's a hard place for artists to, to exist. Um, and as has been the sort of case in so many places, um, you know, they become interesting because of different groups who make a city have sort of energy and life to it. And then um, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that those places then get more and more interesting and more and more people want to be there. And then you price out these, you know, these communities of artists and performers and musicians, etc. So London is, you know, suffers from that um, <clears throat> before, obviously, COVID hit. I think now, obviously, you know, arts funding is in such a particularly challenging place. Um, not, you know, across the board, never mind organizations like the BNA who are who are historically so well funded, both, um, you know, publicly and also privately, um, that it does, you know, put us in a really difficult moment of how actually we, you know, support artists you know, at this time. And I would say, you know, there was a, a fantastic decision taken by Tate this year. They were obviously due to, to, host, um, the, to host the Turner Prize. And instead of going ahead with that project, um, you know, like they normally would have. They took the funds that they had available to mount that exhibition and they put they, they basically created grants for artists to support through this. And so I think you know that is a really, really brilliant example of actually how we need to change things at this particular moment because 
going ahead with plans as they would normally be doesn't quite work right now. And we've got to think about how we might, you know, use our sort of our financial support and actually our intellectual support to, to, to sort of direct that in different ways to artists because the sector and individual artists need a huge amount of support to get through this. Because at the end of it, we are all going to want everything that we had in life before this happened. You know, there is a huge appetite for art. Everyone wants to enjoy it and experience it. But actually, you have to put in then if you want to take that out of it. That's a really beautiful sentiment. And I'm so pleased to hear you say that. And I think it would be great, Lisa, for you to expand a little bit on, on how Axis responded, because it sounds like there's been some really interesting similarities there in your response in that way. And would you like to talk a little bit about what you have Thank done as you. an institution? I feel like the moment where you can... Um, respond and shift is actually a small it's a small window I don't know if it felt like that at VNA but it felt like this opportunity to decide what to jettison what to keep what to extend and for us it was the Adelaide Biennial of course uh, what to come back to later on that idea of having to, to act with such agility is I think a really it's an important thing today in museums anyway but then the question of how the artist plays a critical role in that. And I, I guess a little bit like the Tate, but on a slightly smaller scale. AGSA were able to um, reassign some of our funding from, from Benefaction to some artist bursaries. And unfortunately, we were only able to grant six $10,000 bursaries, but we did it really quickly. And it felt like it felt like the right step at the time to do that very, very quickly to, to offer that support. We also rebooted our South Australian Artist Fund as part of our annual appeal, and that's been really successful. So it's probably about 100K in total. It doesn't sound like much, but the gallery's um, income has been severely impacted upon, as I'm sure uh, you understand. I'm sure everybody, in fact, probably even less so, because this, where the V&A and other institutions, even in Australia, rely upon such enormous kind of in international visitation, we are so lucky in Adelaide that we have a local and, and I would say quite kind of committed audience who came back to us very quickly. So the spring back, I think, was quite quick. And we, we had everyone back in the house. The kind of civic role of the museum didn't, I hope, didn't kind of skip much of a beat at AGSA. Having the doors closed for 10 weeks for the first time in the gallery's history meant that we could dream up a few things and, and act pretty quickly with regard to how we might position those things. Some of them were in train already. I mean, of course, we had things like Troy Anthony Bayless's project that we did with Guildhouse with you guys, Em, mm. that was already in train. Yep. We were just able to shift a few things around, move the furniture around a little bit to accommodate the change. One thing that I think we're particularly pleased about and, and relieved about is the project with Restless Dance. I don't know if anyone's had a chance to see it. It's pretty much booked out. But you can, in fact, see a projection of the work if you come into the space. But, you know, they, they um, received exemption from the State Health Department so that they could dance together. Mm. Now, that was a project that was probably about three or four years in the making and was really put in peril because of everything that happened with the pandemic. So they were able to respond. We extended... The offering, we had to, of course, halve the audience. So it's a very boutique performance that happens for just 10 people in a space. And as a curator, I was able to curate in response to it. So mm. during lockdown, and this is like a love letter to you, Daniel, because I started with the British painting, doing all my, you know, gooey British love tonight. <laughs> but I, I found it, found, as you do, just kicking around the museum, I found it 
a Dane Laura Knight painting that was acquired by AXA in 1939. And it was a painting that was kind of, the influence on the acquisition came from Ursula Bar Smith, who of course was the founder of Carrick Hill, along with her husband. And Ursula was on the gallery's board and was really instrumental uh, regarding the acquisitions, including the acquisition of Knight's work. Now, by the time the gallery acquired the Knight, she was already a dame and she was, of course, part of the British Academy, the first woman to ever be so, with full Academy rights. And I, I kind of discovered the painting on a scrounge as it was making its way to be photographed. And what had happened during lockdown is that we were getting to all of those jobs, as I think many people did, that we couldn't otherwise get to. And one of them was a photographic request that came from the Dame Laura Knight Society. And they said, we, we're launching a new website. We're doing a publication. We need, you've supplied us with a photograph. Thank you very much. But it's too low res. We need a better photograph because we want to show the kind of, the pentimenti, the sense of the painting under the painting, you know, and the, her fantastic use of, of the brush stroke, which you don't see in reproduction unless you get those great detail shots. Can you, in fact, provide us with a new photograph? So we had an opportunity to photograph this painting. It's a two-by-two-metre two painting, which is big by uh, early 20th century standards. And that painting did all these things that I would not normally be at all attracted to as a curator. It's a kind of, it's a really, it's a perfect pastoral painting. It has the kind of, it's very... I don't know, it's kind of camp and it's a really interesting rainbowy confection of a painting if anybody's seen it. And it, it became the linchpin or the starting point for really thinking about this idea of taste and beauty and what people are drawn to and what constitutes a wellspring for a show and how one might curate out of a crisis and how one might use art as a civilising force it was painted on the cusp of World War II, so I was conscious that, that Knight was also feeling something imminent that we were all feeling at the time. So that's, I mean, it, that project gave us an opportunity to leap about 60 years into more contemporary work, and the selection, if you've seen Chromatopia, includes mm. more recent acquisitions into the collection. There are, there are plenty of other stories about what happened over that time and what will continue to happen mm. because we'll see the effect for a long, long time. But indeed, I mean, that's just a kind of one example of how we wanted to bring people back, but maybe even revive ourselves a little bit in the mm. process. There's something I, I tried to, for the show to be really kind of sensorial because I felt like we all needed a good sniff of the salts or something. There's something about needing to be kind of awoken. And I'm Revived, still feeling that now. Refreshed. Yeah, yeah. And Daniel, is there anything from the, you know, the most recent sort of few months for you that, you, you know you want to be able to carry forward? You know, is there a legacy of things that you've experimented with or tried and tested either as yourself or as the institution that you know you want to see taken forward into the future? Um, I, I think connected to the, the sort of in-person experience of, of objects and artworks, um, which is to, you know, a significant degree, um, one of the many purposes of, of coming to a museum or a gallery or an exhibition is is sort of really being critical ourselves as as makers of of exhibitions um, to be really ruthless in our selection and identification of the objects and artworks that we want to help us tell stories and i think as we we've all you know come to accept through the process of being locked down in our houses for months and months on end, um, that the you know the kind of the physical relationship with an object, um, being in front of something, 
is far more significant and meaningful and powerful uh, than, than seeing it um, reproduced uh, on a screen or in a book. Um, you know, we, we all have those moments when we've seen the building in person that you know, we haven't seen for a whole life and then suddenly you see it or that particular painting that you've studied at a particular moment and finally mm. you get the opportunity and it, it genuinely takes your breath away. Um, and it might not even be because that particular painting is so in itself so overwhelming, but just having that physical relationship with it is really important. So I, I feel like, you know, we, we have been in the process for some time trying to think about how we really focus in when we're, um, you know, creating exhibitions to help people, to help the public really understand what it is that we are trying to say and to really sort of elevate individual objects, you know, that are significant, that we want them to, to understand, to speak to, and to take something away from. And to not sort of offer too much up, so much that people begin to sort of be overwhelmed and miss the point. And, and you know, as, as, you know, for those of us who make exhibitions, we get it because we are on the inside and we can understand the 700 different threads and ideas that we are trying to put together. But many audiences can't. Um, and I think, you know, in sort of coming out of this, because we know the power of an object, we've got to sort of remind ourselves of that. Um, and to do as much as we can to help people sort of focus in and understand and take away from things that which we intend them to be able to take away. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's going to be a process of sort of reshaping in a way um, how we present objects um, and artworks in, in exhibitions and in galleries to really be really straightforward with the public um, with what it is that we're trying to say and what it is that we're trying to show them. Thank you. Beautifully put was I, I, I do know. I mean I, I very often um we we were all guilty of sort of you know seeing a particular gallery space and thinking okay well then this is this is what I need to fill it and actually it's just the wrong sort of place to start thinking about how you form a story and how you tell it you 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 you, you could you could tell it with you know 10 different paintings you could tell the most amazing story you know, it doesn't have to be sort of rammed in with as many different things. And I think also it's, um, we are obliged to be sort of, in a way, less lazy. We've got mm. to make really difficult decisions. Like that's mm. part of what it is to curate an exhibition. You've got to make really decisive decisions about what, what is in and what is out. And not in some ways take the easy route of saying, well, I'll just have a bit of everything because then I've crossed every T and dotted with every I and um, there's no place for critique because I've got it all there. Um, actually, we've got to be a bit more ruthless. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, the, the crucible of now is helping us do that. I, I'm sure it's the same there, Daniel, but it's pretty impossible to bring anything from outside of the country in. And it's actually very difficult even to bring something from one state to another. So for AGSA, who I think we've relied pretty heavily on national and sometimes international conversations around collections exchange, that's actually really been put to the test. And we have to think about the resources required to do some of that work and to think about how our own collection, thank God we have one, uh, can work for us. So, you know, I, I think it's a, I think in a way that sense of decisiveness, the, the mantle of responsibility with regard to the decisions we make for our public has become sharpened 
and that the, the time away and then the, t- the new time returning has, has re- I think there is a kind of sense to which we are now more conscious of the power of the object and on an ironic way, the kind of analog becomes so much more significant. We've, we've actually continued to lend um, through, not through lockdown in total, but come July, um, we had started releasing objects again to um, you know to borrowers at other organizations and we're we're continuing to borrow um, so we've got loans starting to arrive for various exhibitions we've got over the next few months but in general what you say is absolutely right that actually that kind of system of borrowing and lending will will change in certainly in the short term and that it does it does sort of encourage us to focus in on one of the kind of I would say in a tripartite, the most significant aspects of what it is as we are as museums and one of you know i would say that would be the sort of intellectual sort of resource that exists you know within the human capital of of, of an organization the public and obviously the collection itself because so much of what we do so much of of what we are able to sort of think about and put to people comes as a result of the collection the collection is always really at the heart of, of, of kind of our thinking about engaging with people and sort of offering something up to the public. And we've got to start using that. Um, not that we haven't been using it in a way which is brilliant to begin with, but actually to understand that its capacity, there is more there for us than we might have imagined before. Absolutely. I was really interested in um, asking you both to sort of reflect on this, this sort of point that, I was, uh, that occurred to me, uh, particularly as I was thinking about our talk tonight, that this year, 2020, isn't just defined by a global health crisis. You know, we've, we've, had, we've been in the throes of a climate emergency. You know, Australia was literally on fire for the, the beginning months of this year. And we've had such enormous um, critical mass around social issues such as Black Lives Matter. Uh, I was wondering if you would reflect on how you both as re- curators or as institutions have responded to your community's engagement in these movements. I feel like in Australia, the rapid succession of all of those things triggered, as you say, by a, a, a year, uh, at the beginning of the year being a continent inflamed has made it very difficult to respond and very difficult to kind of extricate one part of the response from another, mm. to be honest, Em. I feel like we're still processing that and thinking about the role that, that we actually play. I mean, I've, I've found the absence of artists' voices, and, and you and I have spoken about this, Emma, we've, mm. I think we've both found the absence of artists' voices during this critical time so devastating, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that artists haven't been busy making good and important work, but the lack of civic embrace of the function and role of the artist has just been so bloody infuriating mm. that I feel, like, I feel like the time is nigh and there has to be an opportunity soon for all of the fury and all of the kind of fear, I suppose, that has been generated over throughout the year to, to come to bear. Mm. I gave a little radio, I talked on the radio today about the Ramsey Art Prize and they were asking me about what it would look like next year, you know. Mm. Everyone, I mean, if, if we did have crystal balls, we've thrown them out, haven't we, because we can no longer tell what the fuck's <laughs> going to happen. So they've been jettisoned as well. But I was kind of talking about, I don't know if, what artists are making right now and and there's probably lots of I hope there are makers listening to this so they know what they're making I don't know if it looks darker or if it looks lighter I don't know Mm. what it looks like I don't I don't know I'm excited I can't wait to see what it looks like but I don't know what the now looks like yet in terms of art making 
in terms of practice. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see it. And I think that that is a really broad spectrum in terms of, you know, there would be people listening tonight and I'm sure listening after, after tonight that will be incredibly active in their practice and actively making and creating new work. And there is a huge cohort of artists who have been absolutely paralysed by this, this shift and I guess I would almost say an erasure of the arts from the, um, the national Australian national um, agenda and vernacular, even when it comes to talking about um, stimulus support, artists are barely mentioned. The role of the artist is, has been sidelined. And so I think that's a really, uh, you know, thanks for raising that, Lisa, because I think that is a, a critical issue when we're talking about how institutions are also responding to these issues. We need to make sure that artists are part of that conversation. Absolutely. Well, I suppose in, in the UK, we have, layered on top of this sort of the best part of four years of really complex um you know a really a really complicated um difficult trying exhausting situation politically um you know where we've had three different governments in place for the past over the past four years we've obviously been grappling um as a nation with brexit which has really well, it hasn't torn us apart, but it's trying, you know, it, it does everything to come as close to that as possible. And so, you know, everything sort of that has happened this year is on top of or, or kind of crashes into what is already a really difficult trying um, situation within, within the country. And that doesn't mean that life doesn't really go on, you know, as normal until COVID happened, because it, it did in, in, a, in a, you know, a more or less um, significant way. But there was this underlying feeling of sort of anxiety about what was happening to the place that we all um, we all love, you know, and um, the place that we had all sort of thought we understood and had a, a very sort of exclusive monogamous relationship. And then suddenly to find out actually it might be quite different than what what we had known. And that's so that was that's certainly my experience of it, having come, you know, to the UK when I was 19 and thought I understood very much what this place represented, to then that sort of, you know, in my 30s be told, well, actually, it's a bit different from that. It's very difficult to, um, to kind of take in and accept. And I think, you know, Lisa, what you say is exactly right. Like this moment, I suppose I look for, um, you know, the kind of, what are the good things that can come out of it? And I have been thinking, you know, over the past sort of two to three years, hopefully um, one really fantastic thing that can come out of this, you know, that can balance all the downsides to what might come is an absolutely rich and overwhelming response from artists. Because if, if there's anything good that can come out of this, that would be a wonderful thing. And I think, again, you know, it's sort of like I said when we started talking is that in some ways the massive success of London as a creative center which it has been you know for for, for decades um it begins to buckle under its own success and so if we can through all of the things that are really difficult and challenging right now um go back to being hopefully a bit more um gritty and a bit less sterile um, and a bit more encouraging of a community of artists that can make all of the things which genuinely for centuries have made art in this country, some of the most significant art in the world, um, then, then I will take that. I will take the bad if it comes with some of that good. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, I want to give a little round of applause for that. Thank you. Um, but that actually, speaking about that connection with artists and, and 
enshrining artists and bringing that to the forefront, I'd love to ask some questions about how do we go about building those connections between artists and institutions at a time where distance is something that's a really challenging issue. You know, that I know you have visited South Australia not that long ago, Daniel, and you visited some artists and you did some studio visits, which is incredible. And, and we'd love to hear about that if you're happy to share. But, you know, that obviously is not something that's going to be possible, at least in the immediate term. So, you know, how does, how does, does one navigate that? Well, I mean, I think it, it is really difficult to do um, when, you know, when we're all sort of not supposed to be seeing each other. And I, and, I, and I think, you know, I'm struggling with this right now when I, you know, there are some particular projects we're trying to get off the ground where, you know, I know that there is incredible material that exists within particular collections or archives, you know, where we're musing about doing potential projects. But it's really difficult to kind of, get beyond uh, a very initial concept of what you might do with that material and the kind of, the kind of um, you know, potential of that material if you can't see it. Um, and, you know, looking at images of things, you know, it just, it isn't the same as seeing something in the flesh and being, you know, you sort of being able to develop a very clear understanding of what the capacity of that object is. Um, as part of a story and also as something for people to experience. So it is very complicated trying to do all of this, um, you know, remotely. I would say we are far better now than we would have been six months ago because we've all been having to make it work. Mm -hmm. um, but I do, I do think in the same way as we want museums to continue to be civic and social spaces, that at the end of the day, we've got to continue to find ways of being, of interacting, properly interacting. Mm -hmm. Um, mm. not just with artists but actually with their work you know the the conversations that you have looking at something together um are a thousand times more valuable than than sort of reading something and looking at an image and that you know to get the most out of what people are making that's what we've got to find ways of continuing to do so i don't i don't want us to find a sort of temporary fix that's not satisfactory i want us to find ways of doing what we know is the best way of doing it how about you lise well, I was just thinking, oh, thankfully, we started Tarnandi many years ago because mm -hmm. we have the challenge of uh, opening Tarnandi in a few weeks' time. And Tarnandi has been a slow burn with regard to, I mean, not really. It's, it's Hopefully, it's been meteoric in its, in its effect. But in terms of the relationships and the way that we've built over quite a long period of time now, over more than five years, dialogues with communities, it means that at the moment, we are able to stay safe, if you like, with some of those contacts that have been forged. Mm. This year's exhibition, which is a focused exhibition, so there's a, a little bit less pressure in terms of the, uh, the scale of the, the project, but, but it's as ambitious as every town and artistically speaking, but we are able to draw upon the connections that we've been establishing for many years. I'd hate to be starting now. Mm. Like I'd hate to be a curator starting now or hate to be in a museum that's starting now to forge those connections because it, because it is the cumulative effect of putting artists at the, at the centre of the discussion and the centre of the conversations that really matters. So Nikki Compton, we are installing Tarnandi right now at AXA. And of course, things have come from everywhere. So there's work uh, in, the, in the exhibition that's come from the top end, so from Cape York, so uh, from Arnhem Land, all the way through the centre, as you could well imagine, and from the south, and all of that has converged. Now, normally, and many of the listeners would know this, normally that comes with the ruckus of thousands of artists and community members arriving. So this year, it's a quiet 
experience because there, there is not that incredible kind of sound but or that, that incredible kind of fullness, I suppose. But at the same time, the artist's presence is absolutely there and I think it is because it has been cumulative. As I said, I can't imagine doing it if we hadn't have had the years prior. So particularly this year, we, did, we decided the exhibition's called Open Hands and in Bidinjara, Open Hands is Mara Ala. And Mara Ala is what you say about people who are Yankari, people who have a kind of healing power. So I, I feel that we've been able to, and it's, most of it's serendipitous, that the artists have responded in a way to right here, right now. I mean, even the idea of the hand has been recharged in the, this year. Even the idea of this, the idea of touch has changed ontologically. The very notion of touch has changed ontologically with everything else. So I, I'm, I am really excited about this idea of this exhibition that normally opens with the kind of calamity of community engagement, having to still exhibit and experience and stage that engagement, but from afar. So our launch, which always happens on North Terrace, won't be able to happen. It'll happen digitally and it'll have to be a case of taking the work to the artists. We've had artists in Zoom sessions and, you know, we've been doing all sorts of conversing with the artists every single day, trying to bring them into the space because it's normally such a kind of collaboration to stage that show. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. Oh, it certainly does. And I, I think what I, I'm conscious that I've been monopolising the questions and I think there's a few bubbling along out there. So um, I'm just going to give a little prompt for anyone else who's got a burning question that they'd love to put to Daniel or Lisa or both. Um, just a, a little comment or a little question that was um, included in the chat area from Belinda Hoden saying, um, pandemic objects really fascinating in its quest to historicise what is currently happening. I loved the inclusion of TikTok as an object and I, I, I second that. I think that it's uh, very topical and very relevant, especially with a 12-year-old daughter in the house, I can tell you. <laughs> a little comment from Debbie prior to you. Lise, did you photograph any ceramic pots during your um, forage through the archives? For her incredible earring collection. Oh, I'm leaving that for you, Debbie. That's your job. But you know, that's it's a that's a very good point because I kind of in some ways during that 10-week closure, I got I got to do a kind of collections project of my own. Mm. I realise that now as a curator. Now that sounds like a really daft thing to say, given that I am a curator and I'm with that collection, but it, it did buy me that time that wouldn't otherwise be be possible. Do you know I, I have a question? Um, if I'm also allowed to participate, of um, is one of the things that you and I, Lisa, thought that we might, we were sort of musing about all the different things that we wanted to be able to talk about today. And one of them was um, a new artist that we might have discovered in, in the period of lockdown. And I was wondering what, what your, um, who would be on your list? Well, I guess, there are a couple on my list. I feel a little bit awkward outing them, though. Because you know what? It's not, Daniel, you can do it because no one's going to expect you to do a show at the Art Gallery of South Australia on those artists in a heartbeat, are, you, are they? I don't know. I mean, because I was thinking when, when we started talking last week, I was thinking, oh, who's the, who's the person that's really bubbled through the surface that I've kind of been most excited by having discovered over the past few months? And... It could well be someone that you would do at the Art Gallery of South Australia, actually. Well, I think I think you better go first. Then. I think you should share, Daniel, absolutely. 
Well, so I, I had ordered I had ordered an exhibition catalogue um, on an exhibition that the National Gallery of Australia had done in the early nineties called. Um, was the name of the exhibition it was um, don't leave me this way was the name of the exhibition oh yeah and david mcdermott well Hello. so that's the thing so david mcdermott is someone who absolutely i was well across um you know like that that had been in my consciousness and psyche from from years ago um but i will say so i'd ordered this catalog and it got shipped um you know i had it in my office at work and then obviously i had to leave the building so between March and July, um, I, I didn't have, you know, I couldn't get my hands on this book. And then I went back into the building in July. And one of the first things I did was, you know, sit down and start reading through the different chapters in this, this catalogue. And it was actually Brenton Heath Kerr who I came across. And I feel entirely ignorant in saying that I didn't know who this individual was. Um, because, you know, having now seen this catalogue and looked up like, you know, so much about his work, it really, I, I, I had a, a glaring gap in my knowledge. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it was, he would be the person who I would say I'm sort of most grateful for having come across his work in the period of lockdown. And um, I suppose I, I well, I love, um, you know, I've been reading about sort of the, the kind of culture or the sculpture slash costumes he was creating for, for Mardi Gras in, mm -hmm. in Sydney. And the kind of anonymity that they provided him as the wearer, um, and 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 I suppose um, you know some of the projects that he then did as sort of art come public public sort of health advertising just felt very sort of progressive for that mm. particular moment in time to engage that sort of artist in in supporting the messaging, you know, understanding that actually here is an individual who can communicate effectively with a particular community. Um, I really love. So I've I've been doing lots of reading and looking um, at Brenton Heath Kerr's creations um, over the past few months, and that would be the person that would be top of my list, I think, for my lockdown discovery. Well, this is one of those moments, and I know we've had them before, where we talk about kind of co-curating, but maybe co-curating doesn't look like the show that starts at the V&A and comes to AGSA. Maybe it's synchronous curating. Maybe there's something happening there at the same time that it's happening here. And on that note, David McDermott's work is on display at the Art Gallery in Australia at the moment. So well done, you. Um, and, and Troy Anthony Bayless, who I mentioned before, has created a body of work in response to playing with, extending the ideas of, riffing on some of the... Some of the uh, the text-based works of McDermott, and the, particularly the his favourite is the work that you know is when I and you, Daniel, you'll love this. When I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. So yeah. Troy has taken that as the starting point for for a body of work. I feel like you've been doing a little bit more. Um, what can I say? You've been a little bit more peripatetic than I've been because my eye has been drawn to the local. And the person that kind of, there's one person who springs to mind that um, many of you would know, and she's a local artist who's been making very interesting work with textiles where she kind of paints and then unpicks the paintings. And Lucia Dorman's her name, and she's connected with Adelaide Central School and is part of the community that we're talking to tonight. But I, I've been thinking for a long time about textiles. I think we all have in the revival of textiles and, and thinking about how you know, particularly for Lucia, the painting is being deconstructed 
and starting to approximate a textile work. And of course, I'm thinking from a collection that has a strong focus on textiles and a collection that's growing in that, in that space. Mm. I'm curious to know if it's as much of a kind of wave in the UK as it seems to be here right now, the repraisal of textiles is certainly... Um, and you, you're, you've been talking about it with Don't Leave Me This Way, that, that exhibition that certainly repositioned or challenged all the hierarchies that we'd come to it, to expect. What's happening over there with textiles, Daniel? Hmm. You know, I um, obviously, Europe, England, a um, long history of, of uh, textiles as being a, a part of material culture and also massively, particularly in, in the UK, um, as, as an industry, you know, the textile industry in the UK in the 19th century, it's like there's so much kind of wealth that came out of that um, and then supported the arts. But, um, you know, we have, we have in the V&A's collection, we have a very significant collection of, of tapestries. Um, and obviously tapestries have sort of gone from very high to a very sort of less celebrated position in terms of, you know, the, the kind of, um, well, at least in the, the market as such, you know, they went from being the most coveted objects, the most expensive ones, to ones now which are, um, you know, they're not paintings, basically. Um, and we have, you know, we've got the Hunt tapestries in our collection, for, mm -hmm. for instance, um, which are these, you know, incredible, um, you know, tapestries that we, we acquired from Chatsworth. And they are always on permanent display um, in, in the museum. And, you know, we have talked about... Um, an exhibition on tapestry and that wouldn't be tapestry in the historic sense that most people think of you know they think of you know tapestries that would have come from you know kind of Chambord in France and that that's what it would be about but actually looking at at it as um, an art form that has gone on you know to the present day basically you know we obviously all know now you know the the tapestry work of Grayson Perry and other artists you know there's so many in Britain who work in in textiles, but I there is one there's a particular work that I saw last year at the the, the Museo de Solidaridade in in Santiago, and there was this tapestry that had made been made by an artist called Gracia Barrios that she did for a United Nations building, the interior of this UN building, and 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 she did this sort of just before the military junta happened in in Chile, and this work uh, totally disappeared. It just it was never seen again, basically. And it was only discovered um, just you know in advance of this museum or this this exhibition happening in in Santiago. And I have to say, it's sort of you know one of the most breathtaking examples of contemporary tapestry that I've ever seen. And it's examples like these that people don't know about mm -hmm. that need to be being celebrated right now. And it's sort of, yeah. we need to link this, this practice that is happening right now back to the historic practice of yeah. textiles and tapestry that we all know about, because this, it is so rich and so visceral and so moving to see these works, particularly because so many of them come out of, you know, there's so much sort of um, connected to protests and to different movements that we actually need to like help communicate. So, the, you know, there's a lot happening here that we're not doing enough to sort of promote. Yeah. And I think we need to de kind of domesticate them as well. There's been this misconception that it's safe and domestic and, you know, they've been so kind of gendered and feminised. Well, that's, that's part of it. Part of it is, oh, they're, yeah. they're made by women. So it's like, it's not art, it's a bit of craft. And that is the typical type of trope that this, yeah. you know, that this area of making stuff has been constantly. Absolutely. And they are inherently radical. They are yeah. always tied up 
with the political, but in a way that is completely enshrined that kind of personal is, is political adage. So, yeah, that's the show we're going to do together. Like, you can do <laughs> your one and then I'll do mine at the same time. I'm well, excited. you know, we've got a thousand ideas of the ones that we want to do, and that would be a brilliant one. Yeah, that would be, be brilliant. brilliant. I've got a question here from Henry Wolfe. Um, he asks, and we've only really got a few minutes, so I'm just going to preface this, but he's asked, what is the role of historical collections in contemporary times, especially when some of the histories represented are not as inclusive? Um, well, I, I think uh, a historic collection isn't, it's kind of something that never exists just in a historic context. Like these are things, you know, our, our relationship to a particular object now is different to what it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So really, our relationship has got to continue evolving. The, the, the historic collections, although the material itself might be historic and from a very, very different time, it's actually our duty to continue interpreting and changing and changing our relationship and our understanding of that. And it's not just the role of, you know, of curators and organizations to define what that narrative is. We've got to be sort of bringing in other voices to help build what the new narrative is. These things are not sort of static in a particular moment that we've kind of decided what an object means and that's it now, we move on to the next thing. Objects, their, their, their meaning and their significance and their kind of ability to say something changes constantly because we uh, as individuals and as societies are constantly changing. So there's not sort of um, a thing it can do. It's something that is always absolutely, thankfully changing. I couldn't agree more. Artists are the ultimate Trojan horses. They allow us to do what it, what it can be quite difficult for curators, I think, and for art administrators so they can smuggle in challenging ideas and allow us to expose the lack of inclusivity of those histories i think in australia they're an incredible um tool ro road a way of actually achieving or working towards reconciliation and i mean that from every kind of perspective they're one of the most powerful ways of us making sense and relevance from collections but also enabling us to live with ourselves how do we live with some of the vestiges of our history in our museums? We do that because we ask artists to help us make our way through those, to help us make sense of those objects today. Um, yeah, we would be nothing without them. I think that is a beautiful and poignant point to um, start wrapping up tonight. Have you, either of you got any final comments you'd like to make? I mean, my only final comment is really just that. I. I... I sort of sit here on a daily basis quite devastated, not knowing, um, for someone who visits Australia very regularly, not knowing the next time I'm going to be able to, to be there, to see so, I mean, I will say, and this isn't just a plug for AGSA, but I, I, I still remember the first time I visited AGSA and um, the hang that has been put together in that gallery, you know, from my first visit or when I was there six months ago, it just continued to astonish me. Um, the kind of the feeling you can take away from all of the different relationships that you have put together in that gallery with the works that you, the, the, when you see them, um, the conversation looks so obvious, but actually um, it isn't. And the way in which you help works speak to each other, which therefore allows people to understand it, is, is amazing. And so I will, I will miss not being with you again in a few months' time. I don't know when it's going to be, but that would be my last parting shot is to just say, you know, it's so rich what's going on and um, it's sort of a, a very sore point to not know when I get to dip my toe back in. We welcome you with open arms when you can make it back and <laughs> look forward to lining up lots of other artist studio visits for you when you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so kind. 
it's been such a wonderful opportunity to have you tonight. Thank you. Thank you for connecting with the artists here in South Australia and across the country. This is the last session of the Revision Spring Series program and it has been such a wonderful few days. I can't tell you how enriching it has been. The, the voice of the artist, the experience of the artist has been absolutely central to those conversations. And I really want to acknowledge um, my incredible artist programs manager at Guildhouse Debbie Pryor for her leadership and direction of this program and the incredible team in the organisation who have made it possible. It's been a beginnings of an important gesture and a movement towards engaging artists and having that critical discussion and connectivity and community as we emerge out of this ridiculous 12 months, but also into a new and uncertain future. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much for your time and your energy, both of you. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Guildhouse. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.